Welcome to On Scripts Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy world. Hey, Biblical World listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Well, actually, I'm traveling right now, so I don't have my normal microphone, so apologies for the audio quality. We hope that you are doing well. If you could do us a favor, uh, we'd love to get the word out about Biblical World. Uh, a little more widely. So if you could share or like the episode and also give us a rating or review on iTunes or sorry, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the, the podcast, we'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening and for taking the time to uh, review us and uh, share the word. Okay, enjoy this episode. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. My name is Amy Balo, and I'll be your host for today. This episode is a continuation of our series, New Perspectives on the Bible and Nature, and today's guest is Professor Erica Ferg, who has written a well-regarded book that uses text, iconography, and archaeological and traditional sites to demonstrate how important geography has been in the history of religion in the Eastern Mediterranean, beginning with the ancient Canaanites all the way through the modern day. The book is titled Geography, Religion, Gods and Saints in the Eastern Mediterranean and is currently out in paperback through Rutledge Press. So um, without further ado, it's a pleasure to welcome my longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Erica Ferg, to the show. Erica is an associate professor at Regis University in Denver, Colorado, and is currently working on a second book that will be on the celestial history of religion, which I'm sure will sneak its way into our conversation. Um, so welcome to Biblical World, Erica. Thank you so much, Amy. It's really wonderful to be here and especially to get to be here with you and talk about this. Thank you. Um, so uh, it's been a, a few years since your book came out. And uh, just to give everyone a bit of background. So um, Erica and I did our dissertations together and had library carols right next to each other. So we were very much in step the entire process um, and would sometimes <laughs> not let each other move until things, certain things were done. Um, so we have a, a very deep history um, that isn't quite as long as the history of religion in the Eastern Mediterranean. But, um, <laughs> It might as well be from our perspective. So, uh, so that's the energy that we're bringing to this. And so, um, it's been a bit of a memory lane to um, be able to talk about my book on the show, and then now talking about Erica's book. Um, and so, it's um, I don't even remember how long you worked on it before it was published. And so, it's just been quite a quite an adventure to to bring it to light. And so, um, I just want to start off by having people get to know you a little bit. So if you could start off by just telling us a little bit about your background and how did you come to focus on the Eastern Mediterranean? Because most scholars of religion focus on a time period or a, a tradition, um, but you chose to pick a geography. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um, so thank you for the question. Um, so a little bit about my background. I uh, started off my career what feels like a million years ago now as a linguist. I was a Persian linguist in the United States Air Force, and um, it was an awesome experience. I'm so glad I did it. I would definitely do it over again, um, but I would definitely leave over again. I realized I really liked the subject a little too genuinely academically to really be a great fit for national security. You know, I wanted to talk about things and talk to people all the time and um, work on language. And, um, you know, that was not a part of my job. My job was to be quiet. And I did fine at that. But then I realized I, I'd be a better fit in academia. So I went into that and kept focusing, you know, really kind of on the 
Middle Eastern, Near Eastern world, kept going with languages there. So Arabic, lots of other um, languages of that region and um, sort of through kind of my own accidents of history ended up with a dissertation advisor whose focus was the Eastern Mediterranean as well. And, you know, I, I had actually thought I might continue focusing on the Persian at world, but after the 2009 elections, I realized I really wasn't going to be able to get funding from U.S. institutions to do that kind of work. And so along with the the change in advisor, I decided to pivot to the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, and I always found as I was looking at different doctoral programs, um, you know, you, you I could focus on this period or that period. And for a while, I, I really thought I would do kind of Byzantine, late antique, Quranic kind of focus. Um, and as it turns out, that's still my favorite period. Uh, but I, I also thought that if I continued working where I was working, I'd be able to look at a broader period of time. And that always was my interest anyway. It's always where I felt pulled. It's a lot harder. It takes a lot longer. There are a lot more languages to have to master. Um, but I thought I could say something in a broader way by doing that. And, you know, I, I also found through the methodology of geography of religion that that was really how I wanted to kind of position myself and focus my own work. Because as you know, as listeners will know, it's unusual in religious studies not to just focus on a single religious tradition or a, you know, single, you know, text or something. Um, but but I found that by making my focus, limiting it by geography, and in my case, it's the Eastern Mediterranean, so sort of rectangle of territory in between Turkey, you know, and Egypt about the size of Italy or so, but looking over time, over a great deal of time, um, 3,000 to 4,000 years, what that helped me see was the ways in which uh, religious traditions, peoples are interlinked and how, you know, no religion ever emerges in a vacuum devoid of other influences. And I think looking at geography over time, the same place over a long period of time, really helps one to see that in in what I think is a more accurate and more helpful way. So that's sort of how I how I got to looking at the Eastern Mediterranean just in particular. But my my area of interest still is always uh, text tech text based. You know, as a language geek, that that figures prominently. Yeah, and your and your language geekiness uh, definitely shines through in your work because um, if there's if there's one thing that I want people to know about your work that may not come out in the conversation is just how adept you are at so many different languages. And so it really is a treat reading your book. Um, and you don't, you don't do it to the level of like boredom the way that like, I feel like a lot of biblical scholars can do um, because that's not your point, right? Like your point is always like something else. And so it's just, it's really a tool that you sprinkle in. And so it's really nice to get exposed to like the linguistic mm -hmm. changes in the area as well as the religious and political that you talk about in the, in your book. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about your book. Like, what's your main idea and how did you come about it? Yeah, this uh, project um, was something and you asked kind of originally how long, you know, how long did it take? And you know, from writing start to finish, it was eight years, fully eight years, um, you know, but a great deal of time in research and thinking. And I had first kind of come across what I thought was this in interesting phenomenon that seemed unusual to me from my perspective early on in about 2004 when I was first um, living over in the region. And I had this experience of seeing St. Um, St. George, who was shared with communities of Muslims in the figure of Al-Khadr. And, you know, I thought that that was interesting and so strange, given the, the fact that uh, sort of 
common wisdom and even my own like historical or religious studies training suggested that all these communities are really different and really separate and especially in the contentious eastern mediterranean so it flagged for me as something that was odd and then when it came time for me to start looking at um dissertation projects in around 2010 2011 i came across this again and i thought yeah you know maybe that there maybe there's something really interesting there to take a look at and and as I was doing that, I came across the work of um, a Syrian scholar, Hassan Haddad, who was writing, he was at the University of Chicago, and he was writing in the 1940s, 1950s. And he had this article that he wrote about St. George and um, Al-Khadr and Elijah, Elias, um, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And as someone, you know, he was sort of very well positioned, um, having grown up, I believe, in Syria to have seen this phenomenon firsthand. Um, and he was the first to make the provocative, but, you know, unsubstantiated claim that that each of these uh, figures and the communities, the local agrarian communities that venerated them, were each continuations, in his words, of the cult of the Baals of Syria. And, you know, that was very eyebrow raising for me. Um, and I thought, well, that isn't so interesting. That's very interesting because it's true they share all these interesting motifs and but you know no one had really actually investigated that in a kind of um formalized way and so i thought that i would do that myself but instead of you know necessarily trying to setting out to make any kind of genealogical argument i thought what if i look comparatively using um comparative religion methods using geography of religion methods and look instead at all four figures, you know, examining for each of them their major texts, um, important sites that are related, and you know, trying to to cull from those the geographical and political and religious influences that I could see from that, and then look at them in comparative perspective and see what could I glean from that? What might that kind of analysis tell us about the way that religion has developed and unfolded in the Eastern Mediterranean? Right. And and so one of the things that um I really appreciated about your work and, and even more so as I get deeper and deeper into my research on the impacts of nature on the biblical authors, um, specifically just because that's my area, is that you help us pivot toward the everyday person. Um, so you're concerned with people as agrarian people, which in those days would have been like probably over 90% of people were working in the fields and doing all the stuff of agriculture that makes the world go round. But for most scholars are concerned more with like the urban centers. And I think that is a product of a couple things. Um, I mean, archaeologically, that's what we have, right? We have more of the the built culture of like things made of stone um, and mud brick and, you know, kind of the, the fancy wares that people would have in the urban centers. And we don't really have much about the agricultural community, right. In the archeological record um, because mm -hmm. those things degrade, right. Um, wooden tools, tents, like all the things that would mark those kinds of communities really um, don't stand the test of time in the archeological record. Um, but also it, it shows how urban we are, right. That we would look back with interest in the, the cities, what we consider more of civilization. Um, but it wasn't that way for the vast majority of history. The vast majority of history, we've been an agrarian mm -hmm. people, um, at least mm -hmm. since the Neolithic revolution. And so I think that's a really important distinction that I want our listeners to, to get, right? Um, because um, the kind of religion that you're talking about is very different than our modern conceptions of religion. Yep, I think that's um, exactly right. And it ended up being 
one of the many points that I found I was, you know, making with the book, um, you know, was that we, I, I think by and large, we really think in, in um, erring ways around religions and religious history. We, we're kind of frequently anachronistically putting our own conceptions of these religious categories and people back on earlier time periods where it, it doesn't make any sense for them. These are categories that we use to help us think through things. The, the categories are useful for us. This, this discreteness, you know, between religious traditions or time periods, um, they, they help us create disciplines, create fields, you know, have a scaffolding to our thoughts. And I, think that's good. Um, but it has a downside. And the downside is that we're not able to see the things that don't fit into that picture, which I, which actually I think is, is much more of the picture, you know, this, this, um, kind of agrarian life that really wouldn't have been exclusivist, um, in the ways that we tend to think of these modern religious categories and to, to place that back upon earlier time periods. We were talking earlier about that, uh, analogy of you know looking at at ancient history as being as though you're you're opening a door onto a darkened room and you can shine a few pinpricks of light um, into that room and there are a couple of things you know that you can see fairly well but then you have to be really careful and mindful that you are you're building you're constructing a whole picture on the basis of a few pinpricks of light um, you know and so I think that that's it's something we all certainly myself included need to be uh, mindful of, need to be careful of, that you're not sort of, this This explains all things. But I do think that that, that particular perspective, that disciplinary perspective, um, is something that has, has occluded, quite frankly, our thinking about religions and religious history in the ancient world, because we are looking with eyes that are, uh, you know, presuming these categories that, that really weren't there and, and experiences that were not there uh, onto earlier peoples. Right. And part of that was the, the just the lack of literacy, right? Like nobody in those days is reading, like nobody is um, going to a religious text to see like what to properly believe or how to properly act. And so for the vast majority of people, it was really just kind of about what worked, right? And so that's something that comes out a lot in, in especially your earlier chapters, looking at um, the weather patterns that you look at, and especially the case of Baal, it's really just about what works for people. And we even see that reflected in the biblical text. And um, for me, like Jeremiah 44 is a good example of this because Jeremiah goes to a small community and he's essentially lecturing them on the fact that they should stop baking bread to the queen of heaven, which is probably Baal's consort or sometimes sister, uh, Asherah. And their reasoning is like, look, it works. Um, when we stop offering cakes to her, um, the land dries up and we can't live like that. Um, and we're concerned about our families. And so, you know, leave us alone. Right. Um, and I think that really, for me, like, I always hear that when I'm reading your book, um, it's just, there's this idea of like, it works, right. At least that's the perspective. But again, like they're not, they're not going to any kind of text to like see if they're doing it right. And so I think that's something that is very different for moderns. I mean, it's not until the modern education system that you have widespread literacy. Right. Definitely. You know, not until you actually see that as a project. And this, this, I really can thank um, James Gray and, um, and his 2015 book. Uh, it's called Twilight of the Saints, Everyday Religion in Ottoman Syria and Palestine. Um, I can really thank him for 
giving me the the undergirding in this book as a kind of theoretical framework for being able to describe pre-modern religion in these terms of agrarian religion, right? This comes from uh, from his very good sustained research, you know, over a specific period of time, about 1600 to about 1800, using the records from the Ottoman Empire um, and and to be able to demonstrate how in the in this pre-modern preliterate period people were not did not have the same kinds of exclusivist religious identities that we have because that also largely presumes that they are literate that they can read any of their texts and understand and you know kind of ha- come to have a stake in how they're different from other communities um, you know in a in an agrarian setting people are really concerned with the exigencies of everyday living. Um, and you would know, um, you know, perhaps that somebody comes from a different community than you, that would, you know, the, the differences really existed in the realms of birth, de- death, marriage, and taxes, you know, for these different communities. They were different communities, um, but they shared so much of the same sorts of biblical stories and that kind of experience where what they need is to uh, make it rain or to make, you know, to make sure that they're sick child doesn't die. Um, you know, and so people would use whatever was effective, whatever was useful. Um, and not certainly not just in that period time period, but all previous time periods. And one of the things that was neat was, um, you know, he mentioned in that book that I, you know, this, this ought to be applied to earlier time periods as well. And it's just not, it's just not the focus of this particular book. Um, but I really did try to make that the focus then of mine to say this is a, a good example of agrar- agrarian religion in practice and how that kind of perspective is possible really because it's um, in, a, in a pre-literate environment where you don't have the same kinds of structures in place either, um, like in terms of like ecclesiastical uh, literal structures or um you know, people who are trained in the teachings um, of these religious traditions to go out to communities and make sure that everyone understands their exclusivist space. You know, so that's the that's really what uh, where this book focuses. Good. So um, I want to focus um, now and kind of walk through your text a little bit. Um, so you you start off with a very um, really helpful description of the geography of the region and the sort of climatological phenomenon that you really see at, at work behind some of the stories that we're going to talk about um, moving from uh, Baal into Elijah and then the, the Christian Saint George and then the Muslim Saint Akhader, um, which for us listeners uh, for the listeners here Akhader is spelled in English uh, A L hyphen. K-H-I-D-R. Um, and if you Google it, you'll see a lot of different spellings and that's totally fine. Um, but it's just whatever looks like it might be pronounced Akhader um, is probably referring to him. So I just want everyone to kind of know that in case they want to find more information. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit about like, what are some of these experiences of nature that people are having that might move along this, you know, religious history and kind of I mean, this concern never goes away, right? And so I think it's worth pointing out that even as you know, religion ebbs and flows and certain things fall out of fall out of practice, the geographical concern is always there. Yeah, that yeah, that's absolutely anchoring, I think, what's taking place um in this book, what the book narrates. And, you know, so if you think of the um 
the region of the Fertile Crescent, right? You have the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers on the kind of eastern arc, um, and that arcs up and around through Syria and down the Levant, the eastern Mediterranean, down into the Nile. Um, and this is the zone of the world, one of the zones where agricultural practices first develop. But unlike, you know, the Egypt with the Nile or the Euphrates and the Tigris um, in Mesopotamia, these are rivers that kind of flood annually and predictably, or that can be used for large-scale irrigation. Um, you know, there are really three main river sources in the eastern Mediterranean, and it's not like that. And so what ends up happening is that rain-fed farming, rainfall farming, um, farming that is enabled simply from rainfall, becomes the, the, the order of the day in the eastern Mediterranean. And so consequently, you see a figure like the storm god develop with very specific traits in the eastern Mediterranean. And there are storm gods, you know, of course, throughout the ancient Near East, but they all have slightly different characteristics that really reflect their specific geography. And in the case of the eastern Mediterranean, a figure like Baal Baal Haddad emerges and is enormously influential for, you know, a good three millennia um, because of this extreme reliance on water from the sky, rainfall, in order to um, enable agricultural practices and, and the continuation of life. And I think it's so important, too, to remember that that is really the backdrop of the Hebrew Bible as well. Uh, you know, you, what you're bringing up earlier was great because I was like, you know, I'm not sure if I should go the way of talking about textual religion or this particular context. Um, but when, you know, I think when you're willing to read the text again, read any text again, without necessarily the frames in mind that we think we should be reading or seeing in something. Um, so you point out, you know, Jeremiah 44. And as I was working on this book and researching all these different figures and looking at first and second Kings or anything in the Hebrew Bible, it was just stunning how clear the message came through that this is really all taking place in a, a position of the dominance of bond worship, especially in the North. That is. Um, what's taking place for people because those are the concerns that people share and still have at living in this agrarian environment that is since about 6,000 or 7,000 BCE um, frequently in drought. <laughs> I think the generalized notion about the climate there is that about three of every 10 years is in drought. Um, and so it creates this kind of sort of immediacy um, and an extreme, like deeply felt need for rainfall. And I think then also this consequent dominance of a figure like Baal in the region for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also have these um, probably more rare phenomenon as well, where you have like on Mount Safon or Mount Safan, uh, which is the mountain in the north of the Levant where Baal is said to live. It's, it's right on the ocean or it's right on the sea. So when the certain things happen in the weather. There's just like this big cloud. It looks like a, a UFO of clouds, right, around the top. And so it's very striking, right? And so you would look at that and think like, good Lord, that's where something lives. Like something's going on there, right? Something divine, powerful, um, terrifying is happening there. And then, you know, it's right on the sea. And so when you have the storms coming in and, you know, you can see um, if like if you're in Haifa in Israel or even Akko, which is a little bit further north, like you can see for a long way. 
And I just remember, you know, I lived in, in Akko in um, 2012. And when I moved there, it was February, which is like right in the midst of the rainy season. And um, I would make myself like go outside in some of these storms um, and stand at the sea just to experience like what people saw to like understand some of these things better. Um, because, you know, you can, and there's sometimes the water spouts that you talk about in the book. Um, there's all these ways that you can see the things that might have inspired legends like Leviathan, you know, the, the serpent that um, either Yahweh or Baal needs to kind of manage, right? The, the rivers are, are quite snaky. Uh, and so there's like all these different ways that you can kind of get into this space of imagining like how these people saw nature and then kind of got religious about it, right? Um, because those things, you know, can be terrifying, especially if you don't have science, you know, the way that we do. I mean, I think it, it offers also an explanation for what's happening, which is a sort of form of control, you know, like if I can explain this, I can, I, I have some more control over it and, or I can appeal to other gods that might also be able to combat what seems like either the capriciousness of life or, you know, the extreme destructive power of nature. And I so applaud what you're saying, because I, I for me personally, you know, Texts are important, et cetera. But really what I think matters the most is to be like somewhere in standing on the ground where people lived and experienced their lives, because that's really the biggest influence on, you know, on the, on the myths that come to be deeply held and important for them on the explanations that they give the world that then, you know, over time evolve into religious principles, even. You know, that 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 kind of firsthand, like lived felt experience and, and in particular when it comes to geography and climate are of the utmost importance. And, and so that's that's really what I wanted to, to highlight in this book, for sure. And one of the things you do for each chapter is you walk us through a site that is religiously important to each of the traditions that you look at. And so I was wondering if you could talk us through one of those sites, um, because you have an interesting um, way of describing, I think it's Baalbek that you describe this way, where you say it combines the mythic and the geographical and its physical location. And I think that applies to every site that you talk about, right? Um, it's just it's so much a part of religious sites. It's not just the actual archaeological remains, but some even just the situation that it's in in terms of geography can be really important um, to reflect these concepts and stories. And so um, can you just like walk us through one of those and how you um, all of this has kind of impacted how you think about archaeological sites? Sure. Um, so we can we can definitely go with uh, Baalbek, uh, this particular site. And, you know, as I was working on this, and I had been out there a couple of times um, you know, in this really fertile region of uh, modern day Lebanon, very close to modern day Syria. And I also think, and I try to point out with the book too, that all of these, all of our more modern um, state borders also preclude a, a proper understanding of history and religious history in the region, because it seems to imply that things stop when of course they, they didn't, they were experienced in a much more fluid way by people. Um, but Baalbek is is located right there um, in between uh, two important mountain ranges right in the center of this valley. That's the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And Baalbek most likely means Baal of the, of the Biqa'a, this particular region. And there are, you know, there is evidence for veneration of Baal there going back 
many thousand years in that space and that there had always been a continuous shrine at the region. What I think is notable about that is that it's right at the center, right at the kind of headwaters of two of the most important regional religious rivers. Um, Like so the Litani um, River that flows to the south and goes out through the mountains um, there in Lebanon, kind of empties just north of uh, modern day Tyre. Um, and then the Orontes River, which in you know local dialect is called Elahasi, the the Rubble River, because it flows unlike other rivers. It flows to the north um, rather than to the south. So it flows to the north first, turns and um, empties out into the sea very near, just alongside um, where Jabal Akra. That's the the modern word for it, but it's also been known, like you said, as Mount Safan, Mount Safan, Mount Hazi um, for the Hittites, Mount Safan in um, uh, in the Bible. Uh, Mount Cassius for the Greeks, Mount Cassius for the uh, Romans, um, you know, a really important uh, regional mountain. And it's, it's, it's stunning to see. It rises uh, a mile high from sea level, like directly at sea level up one mile high. And it's been used for millennia as a mariner's point because it's something you could see from so far away, you know, as people would try to navigate the the Mediterranean um, and kind of hug close to the coast, this was a, an important point. In fact, in certain points in the Hebrew Bible, it's known as simply Zafon refers to the north. <laughs> it's like just the north, the, the, the stand in direction for the north. Uh, and so it's this really um, arresting site that also has an impact on the local weather patterns as well. Like you said, the, the clouds swirl around it, sort of where storms come through the Mediterranean, they move from the west to the east, and then they turn um, right around where that mountain is and head south or head to the east. And so people who saw this, yeah, like you said, it was it was very much like, okay, something is up there. And so that being the historical um, homeland and, and definitely in the Baal cycle of of the figure Baal, like this is where he lived, this is where his palace was. Um, really, I think, is is notable. And so we have that homeland of, of Baal there at that mountain that's been so influential all through history, you know, has had different names um, for all these different groups, and then uh, follow the rivers in and where, where their headwaters lie um, is this shrine for many thousands of years um, in various formats to Baal, um, to sort of say Baal is dominant over all of the waters, right? And and certainly over the the mythological stories that develop around them as well. And I think it's worth sort of pointing these out with the um, Marantes River. This was known um, historically as the Typho, as the like um, Draco River, the river, um, the snake flung to the ground by Zeus that sort of gets, stays there Um and also is the river itself. So it's the snake and the river, the, the dragon, the snake, and then the Litani River, which comes from the same etymological root as Leviathan, that LTN um, root there. So we're seeing, you know, Baal as dominant over these foes um, that can be represented in different ways. Um, you know, rivers are sort of the same thing as the sea, right? And if you, if you think about that, like we have different categories for rivers and sea. Like to us, that's those are different categories. But to someone living, you know, 
in mainly in agrarian life outside, or let's say you stand up on the side of a hill and you look down at a river, like you said, it's quite snaky, right? It looks very much itself like a snake and it also flows into the sea. And so those distinctions really aren't there in the same way that there's a difference between a river and a sea. We put those differences on things, but I'm not sure that, that ancient peoples did. And so you you get to see, I think, both that that earlier understanding of geography as something that both is explained um, in these myths and that the myths help to reinforce sort of about about what they do, what their function is, um, and how impactful those things, those experiences are for people um, that we really see illustrated in the in the Baal cycle. And then I think also in this site of Baalbek and the the rivers and then the mountain right there where it empties out. And and as you mentioned before, I mean this this just gives a snapshot of just the the depth and I think the why, as you said, Baal is is venerated for at least three thousand years, as far as we can tell, um, because these landscapes are so incredibly impactful. And if you don't have a better narrative, right? If you don't have like a better way to like kind of break that devotion, you're really out of luck, right? And so like this is just how it's going to be. And so you can see why the cult of Baal um, and and Asherah, who's like either either his sister or his consort, depending on what you're reading, uh, sometimes sometimes both. Um, again, talking about different kinds of worlds, it, it's really telling that like how much of a fight it has to be in the biblical text. Right against against this cult um, because it is deeply enmeshed in the region uh, long before Israel shows up, you know, and it continues into the Greco-Roman period um, and, and and maybe even beyond. I don't remember where you put the end of of that officially, um, but it kind of fizzles out eventually and gets absorbed into other things. It doesn't even just disappear; it gets absorbed. But from the biblical perspective, we tend to think that it ends. Right. Um, with uh, sometime in kind of like the Assyrian or Babylonian period as people go into exile, um, because the biblical authors end up having bigger fish to fry at the end of the story. Right. And so um, but we so we lose track of Baal, I guess. Um, but he's he's huge in the book of Kings, especially or the first and second Kings. And so this kind of segues us a bit into Elijah, because this, I think, is like the move from um so we kind of understand what's happening with agriculture and Baal and how those two kind of get meshed together. But of course the Hebrew Bible tries to kind of break that tradition. So what do you, what do you see happening with Elijah that relates to everything, all the stuff we've been talking about? You know, it's so remarkable when you, when you sort of pick up um, first and second Kings and start to read it through from this perspective, but um, the entire context, the setting of, of Elijah and Elisha, you know, successor is a, is their, their main goal is the eradication of Baal worship. You know, they are there to, to break that and instead to say, you know, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the most powerful. This is what we should be focused on. The dramatic scenes, you know, on, on Mount Carmel and the kind of throwdown between the priests of Baal and Elijah is really taking place. Um, that is the entirety of the context, you know, is, is the dominance of Baal worship and, and demonstrating instead that this, that this is the way you should think of it. And what I, what I think ends up happening is that um, Elijah really comes to function as a kind of antithetical alternative to Baal, right? If you think of his name, even in Hebrew, Eliyahu, um, you know, like my God is Yahweh, 
which, and this is something that you see again and again in the Hebrew Bible, these sort of names that function in ways that are making arguments about the dominance of Yahweh. But I think what that also needs to tell us should clue us into that that really wasn't the case at the time. These texts um, are, are making an argument for that <laughs> in order to try to, to bring that about. Um, but but it's happening in a context where that's clearly isn't dominant. Something else is dominant. Um, and so we see Elijah as a figure who really is functioning, like I said, an antithetical alternative to the storm god. And I don't think that there is a an interest in the part of the authors to attempt to make Elijah into Baal. But I think that he comes to function in the region over the next you know, couple of millennia as imbuing some of those characteristics and it being associated with storms and, you know, especially in a, in a popular kind of folk sense with agriculture and with crop growth. So he sort of absorbs these, these uh, motifs that were important and that were previously held by the storm god but that he, in, in his, as a textual figure, as his role, is there to, to eradicate Baal worship and to provide a kind of alternative message, and that is the dominance of Yahweh, but that somehow, like in the process of that, he, as a figure, also comes to be associated with some of these motifs from Baal um, that really are necessitated by the, the physical environment there as, as needs that continue for people in the region. And I think that's that shift is also interesting theologically because it's not Yahweh that's taking over Baal's position, right? Um, it's Elijah, who is obviously a much lesser type of entity, right, than Yahweh. Um, and so you're, it's like starting that lean toward monotheism, right, um, where you know, you're trying to kind of have an intercessor between the deity and the people, um, and so like there's. I think an interesting shift happening there, but at the same time, it's also diminishing or trying to diminish Baal by saying that he can be replaced really by this prophet who's, who's going to mm-hmm, eventually, mm-hmm. you know, either die or be ta- in his case, be taken in a chariot. Um, and so it's mm-hmm. like theologically, like there's a move that's happening as well. It's not just replacing one with the other. It's replacing Baal with an entirely different kind of thing, which is just a human. Well, and in right? a, I want to be clear too in saying that I, I actually think that in the Hebrew Bible, the the move is clear that even the figure of, of Elijah is there to say, it's Yahweh who's dominant, not I. But that the way that it actually functions um, in history is that people associate Elijah with those qualities. Um, you know, I'm not it, it, entirely sure that it's a textual move, but it definitely is one that happens as a consequence. Right? It's a consequential sort of series of, of ties of motifs and ideas that get associated with Elijah. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's where I think maybe what you're saying is a really interesting move, too, in history, that people are ascribing those to this figure as a kind of intercessor figure. So, yeah, I do think that there is a shift like that taking place that's interesting and, and probably could be, you know, drawn out a little bit more, investigated more. But if, from a textual perspective, I think they're still clearly trying to say in the text only, you know, that Yahweh is dominant. But the the, the shift that happens sweeps up Elijah into it. And everything that happens really gets attributed to him over time, right? And so, yeah, and so the, some of the things you talk through are like the, the miracles that he produces and um, the fact that he appears to be the one who stops the rain 
for three years, which becomes a huge problem. He's the one that calls down fire from heaven on, on Mount Carmel in the, the battle with the priests of Baal, right? Which, of course, they utterly fail and Elijah wins, right? But it's, um, you know, the language is there that it's Yahweh doing it. But from the perspective of like participants in the story, it's Elijah, right? And so that's where, again, we're talking about like non-literate cultures, it would be Elijah doing it. I think that's totally fair. You know, it's, it's, it is remarkable that here you have this figure that even, you know, in text is being described as someone who can stop the rain, you know, or bring the rain also with their prayers and their, their, their deep devotion to demonstrating the dominance of Yahweh. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that it's, it's, you know, the, the context of these books is really, um, is really a, a, a religious argument, right? A theological argument that one needs to be um, just sort of single-minded in their devotion to Yahweh, right? So much of the Hebrew Bible is is presenting that message to people, that this is how one should be. Um, you know, you should emulate the prophets and you should have that kind of single-minded focus and that Elijah is a character like that. And, you know, yeah, maybe it says something about just the the needs of people, too, that they would have to ascribe that ability to a figure to stop the rain or to bring the rain. But, yeah, that these are these are motifs that that continue. And and I want to be clear here in saying that I, I actually think, um, you know, after such a long time of working on this, that I have a kind of picture in my head um, and even I include as an, an image in the book on page 247. Um, you know, at the end in the conclusion about kind of the relationships between the figures as they get suggested by the book. You know, I don't think that it's it's that Baal as a figure sort of merges into Elijah. I think Elijah is intentionally a very distinct alternative who's offered, you know, his own figure, not a continuation, but just a, uh, but an alternative who is uh, clearly not the storm god, um, but is imbued with those same meteorological motifs and that that figure then continues. And so at this point in the story, anyway, we have Baal still out there going and we have an alternative in Elijah, clearly related, but not the same figure. And I think that that ends up mattering more the longer that we draw out the historical lens. And when it comes to the figures of St. George and Al-Khadr as well, who I think are each related to those figures in different ways. But that it's it's not that uh, Elijah is just a a morphing of of Baal of the storm god. He's a definite, distinct, different figure who's offering another another way of thinking about this, another theological message. Right, and that and that speaks to the point that Baal worship persists, right? And so you end up with these parallel and competing traditions, and you see eventually what you see with Baal worship is you know in the Greco-Roman period he gets absorbed into other entities and like attached to other deities. Um, which is kind of just what the Greco Greeks and Romans did, right? They just kind of added more and more figures to their pantheon. Um, and eventually it gets diluted enough where, you know, things kind of vanish. Um, but, you know, Elijah just keeps going, right? Um, because he's an entirely different tradition. And so I think, like you said, looking at the long view, that really supports what you're saying, uh, you know, when I first started the project, uh, it was really because I was super interested in the in the fact that we see these communities of modern day Christians and Muslims who are venerating St. George um, and Al-Khadr. And I thought, God, that's so interesting and seems to cross all these boundaries. 
Um, you know, I think very differently about it now at the end of this project, but at the time that's, that's what I thought. And that was what caught my attention. Um, you know, and as I continued researching it, like I mentioned, I came across the work of involving Elijah and then really being able to see after, you know, enough time of, of being in the region and really studying these things that, you know, for at least 800 years, you see these agricultural communities of Jews and Christians and Muslims who share these figures in a way that sometimes the figures are conflated, sometimes they are separate and unique to their own particular communities, but they're kind of thought of as a as everyone's inheritance, as everyone's cultural inheritance. And my first thought was, oh my God, I don't even want to touch the Elijah part. You know, like, oh, I'll just focus on St. George and Khadr. Um, and I found pretty quickly in this project that every time I said, oh, I don't even want to touch that, I would stop myself from saying that because that, that it definitely meant that that was going to be included in the project. But what I what I found um, after working on this for such a long time was that Elijah is really a, the key to understanding the longevity of this phenomenon. For him as a popular figure in the region and someone who remains enormously popular and influential among not just Jews, um, but communities of Christians, communities of, of Muslims, um, and lots of other religious traditions besides. Um, you know, Elijah is this really popular figure um, for a very, very long time. And that, you know, understanding Elijah and attempting to understand this properly, it was essential to the book. And and then, of course, obviously going to Baal and looking at all four of the figures in comparison and seeing the ways in which there were Greek and Roman, um, you know, sort of equivalents of, of Baal in the forms of Zeus and Jupiter in the region, you know, to the point where these figures were it laid directly upon cults to Baal, um, and in the same spots, in particular, like in Mount Safon, Mount Cassios, Mount Cassius. Um, you know, it's then it's the home of Zeus, then it's the home of Jupiter. But but really, um, I appreciate this focus here in your questions about Elijah because even though that was something that made me uncomfortable to start with, it was absolutely essential um, to understand for the entire book project. And I really do see that as kind of the linchpin in the book because it really is, I don't want to say a turning point, like we for the reasons we were discussing earlier, but it really is an important, sh I mean, shift in some ways in not just the um, history of the region, but for the history of religion, right? Because that's where we are getting Judaism, we are, which will lead to Christianity, which will lead to Islam. And so um, it really is this important trajectory shift that's going to give us the Western traditions or the so-called Western traditions. But I really, and you make this point in your book, and I don't think we've talked about it yet, but this phenomenon doesn't really happen outside of this geography. So like these these co-worshipping or worshipping all these figures kind of blended together, um, that doesn't happen anywhere else. It's something very unique to this region. And because of the reasons we've talked about, like the geography, the climate, the, the fact that these concerns don't go away. Um, they go away if you leave the region, right? Because you have you have different you have different kinds of agriculture, you have different ways of life that aren't as maybe concerned about these things. Not to mention, then you get into like canonical religion and other things like that. Um, but it just highlights that this is a geographical thing. Um, so we're kind of getting toward the end. So I want to make sure I give you space to talk about Saint George and um, Ahader. How do you how do you see them fitting into all this? Right. So, you know, this project was also a lot of fun to work on, you know, but it's maddening. And that's what also made it take eight years was to try to feel like I could kind of properly flesh out 
what what was happening and to to come up with an historical explanation for these by following the methodology that I had in mind, which was to look at each of the four figures, um, their important texts, and then important sites that were related to them and analyze them in the same kind of way so as to do a comparative analysis of them and then see what that comparative analysis might tell us about religious history. I knew from the present day that there were these associations with St. George and Al-Khadr and Elijah. That was already there, right? That was already the given. Um, and as I went back and look at these texts, um, it was so fascinating because um, <clears throat> these St. George uh, texts, the life of St. George, which comes from a you know, we have some intact holes from around the year 600, uh, the Syriac text of the life of St. George, <coughs> which is based on an earlier copy from around <clears throat> the year 400 or so. And George is fascinating in that because he is presented very intentionally as a new Elijah. You know, he's following the same kind of frame story that you find in um, First and Second Kings, of um, being housed with, receiving, receiving assistance from a widow, um, of, of creating all of these uh, miracles that relate to the natural world, you know, trees that grow just simply by virtue of him touching them. But in text, anyway, George is, is absolutely uh, mirroring and intentionally so the, the frame story of Elijah in First and Second Kings, which was fascinating to me because on the ground in terms of cults and the way that um, that George is understood, he's very much understood like um, like a Baal-type figure, right? Um, the name even, I think, tells us a great deal about George. Georgios, Georgios, um, from Ye Erion, Earth Worker, right? So many of the, the saints and the names of the saints are not their, their first name or their given name, but they're about their function, right? St. Peter on this rock, um, St. Lucy, um, who's who's blinded her eyes, right? <clears throat> so she's named for her eyes and seeing um, Luke's. But the functions of saints often became their name or the communities for, for whom they, they did miracles that they worked, whatever their, their function was. The name St. George is like the farmer saint, the saint for farmers, the saint for agricultural communities, um, who functions, as I said, quite a bit like Baal, like a continuation of Baal. And that I actually do think is a continuation of Baal, right? The kind of morphing and evolution of those cults and the importance of those cults in the Eastern Mediterranean really get um, absorbed into and, and change into this cult to uh, St. George. But in text, um, in the hagiography, he's really presented very much <clears throat> as a mirror of Elijah, the Hebrew Bible story. And St. George, I'd say, um, you know, of, of the three figures is probably today the figure that's the most dominant and that has been the most dominant for the last couple of thousand years. If you, if you go to the region, he's probably second only to Mary in terms of the number of churches that are dedicated to St. George or amulets and other little um, medals that a person could buy. St. George is hugely popular um, throughout the region and then has ties as well to Al-Khadr, right? Muslims name this figure Al-Khadr, who is his own standalone figure in text in the Quran. In chapter 18, Surah Al-Kaf, verses 65 through 82. And that is remarkable because there I think he is as a figure, Al-Khadr is a standalone figure. 
and he's not actually named in the text. He's named in exegesis. Um, it, he's just d- described as a servant from among our servants um, in the Quran. And there he's associated with a, um, a very particular kind of wisdom literature uh, story about the, the wisdom of God, that God is sort of greater than anyone can understand. But there are all sorts of ties between this figure and Moses as well in the, in the Quran. Um, <clears throat> and so the book goes a great deal more into, you know, each of these figures and their texts and the associations between them. And then I think what I'll, what I'll stop with here, just to, to allow you to ask another question about this, but um, as far as Al-Khadr goes, that what that means in Arabic is the green, right? Al-Khadr, it's um, from the Khadra root to, to make green, to create the green. So in the region, he's often the nickname for him, um, like in, in Palestine and Israel, et cetera, is Khadr al-Akhtar, the, the one who brings the Khadr, who brings the green. And so these communities in practice have all kinds of associations between between Al-Khadr, between Elijah, um, between Elias and St. George, among these uh, communities who live there in the region. And then I think it's the picture is so much richer when you can look both textually to examine the text, sort of what's happening there and what are the ties between those texts, as well as what are the sites with which they're associated and how those things um come to be linked as well. Um, help, just helps to flesh out the picture a bit more of, of what's actually happening. And the thing that's fascinating to me about these communities who, you know, agricultural communities on the ground uh, who share the three figures is that that really was the case all the way up until about the middle of the 20th century um, and coinciding with the establishment of the state of Israel, where you you have all of a sudden these new borders and new boundaries uh, that create exclusivist spaces for people of particular religious communities. Um, and so no longer are these local communities able to, to move between spaces in a more fluid way and come together or, or go apart, but you, you no longer have that kind of, um, mixing. And so the, that's why I think that the, the figure of Elijah has really sort of fallen away in today's world. And the, the, the two, figures in the communities that remain dominant still are St. George and Elijah, and really mainly in agricultural areas, still in the mountains, um, not so much in the cities where those those boundaries are policed a bit better. So um, I have time to squeeze in one last question, and that is um, about the modern implications. And so we've talked about how this has shifted for these communities, um, how you still have remnants of it, of what you're talking about, but by and large, it has changed because of the modern situation, kind of mid 20th century political history. What do you want us as listeners and as readers of your book to, to understand in terms of a big picture? Like what, what are your concluding thoughts that you want to leave us with? Thanks for that question. That's great, Amy. Um, and I think what I hope people take away, um, is a couple of things. One that we largely misunderstand, uh, religious history. Um, earlier religious peoples, when we put these modern exclusivist theological like categories of difference upon them in earlier time periods in this region of the world, you know, the, the boundaries were, were far um, less than we tend to think of them. And that I think that would help us have a better picture of religion in the way it's unfolded. So that's, that's one thing. Um, two, I hope people take away the influence of geography on religion you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that it, 
it's so old, we tend not to think about it any longer. But when you start to to pay attention, I think it's important to remember um, to see the ways in which uh, geography influenced experience and then therefore motifs and um, narrative stories, the things that we we sort of hold dear today, um, but that ha- that have a tie that tie us back to the earlier past. And also, the third thing would probably be that when we look at this region today um, and we see separate and distinct categories of, um, you know, religious groups and these, it's a very contentious area of the world. That's true in the sense that that is what's happening, um, but it's not the whole picture. Um, And there are many ways in which these communities, and definitely this is something that I experienced when I lived out there, you know, they live together and have a lot of commonality, um, share figures. You know, I always say when I was out there doing research that I was the one putting strangeness on the phenomenon, you know, through my questions even. Um, And people would point that out. You know, they'd say, well, we're just all here together. And this is everyone's figure, that it was sort of an amalgamation figure. And sometimes they would refer to like, as St. George, as Al-Khadr, as Elijah, but sometimes just as sort of all three. Um, And that this is everyone's inheritance by dint of the fact that we live here, that we are on this ground in this space. And I think what what they're saying too, without maybe you know being consciously aware of that, is that they're sharing the same actual physical space, and so those needs continue, even though that's really changed. I think in the twentieth and twenty first centuries, as far as such a direct reliance on agriculture or rainfall for the from the sky, although that could certainly turn back to that, um, you know, in the future. But these communities are not hopelessly. Um, exclusivist and at odds with one another. And in fact, that's much more of a modern um, phenomenon. This region of the world, and when it comes to religious practices and communities that are much more blended together, is actually the normal history of the region. Um, that, that It's not strange, um, but it's not actually, you know, aberrant. It's it's quite in keeping with the actual authentic religious history of of the region to have this sort of shared religious practices, shared religious figures. And I think that's a great note to end on because uh, it really just points out that um, people can get along, right? Um, despite religion, despite, you know, whatever um, specific views they might have, um, the, for the, in this case, what unites people is like, we live together. Um, we share a space, we share a culture, and, and that's kind of the, the end of it. Um, and I think that's um, a really refreshing thing to hear that people have been able to do that um, for the vast majority of history. Um, and it's the modern era is kind of odd in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think it's it's worth having the long view of history just to know that. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Yep, that it is, it is odd. It is, the modern era is more unusual when you're looking at, at the big picture of history. And not to say that, you know, things are are only happy and communities only get along, but just that's, that is also a valid way that the world needs to be understood. And, and with that, we are using modern technology to talk about these cool things that you can now research because of the modern world right, and right. Uh, write about and talk about, right. And, and we'll reach, reach our listeners this way. So it's a blessing and a curse to be a modern, modern person. Yep. Um, so with that, thank you so much for, for joining me, Erica. Um, Thank you, listeners out there. I hope you've enjoyed this, uh, even though we are a little bit longer than usual, but I'm I'm pretty sure you'll be okay with that. Um, So thank you very much, everyone, and uh, we'll see you again. Thanks, Amy. 
You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.